hey, 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 Liverpool One Church, it is so great that we get to just have a conversation in our very own church facility today. And we know the score, right? We know. We all want to be gathered here, but right now that's not really on the cards at this moment in time. But I want you to know, like Dave has already said, like we are committed. We're going to get back in here as soon as we possibly can, but when it is super safe to do so. So for now, what we're going to do is we're just going to make the most of the technology that's available to us and continue doing church online. And wherever you're watching from today, seriously, from our heart to your home, we want you to know that we are so glad that you are here with us. You know, it's great to have some of the guys. Hi guys, how's everyone doing today? I hope that you're all doing awesome because it's just amazing to have this crew with us. But you know, before we go into today's talk, I would love to have the opportunity to just pray with every single one of us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take these regular, ordinary words and that somehow, some way that you would breathe your life on them and that you would just take this message, this talk into people's homes, their living rooms, their kitchens, wherever everyone's watching from online and you would bring these words to life. Lord, the last thing that anybody needs right now is another, another talk from me. But God, what we all deeply desire and need is to hear an in season word from you. So we pray that you would just speak to every single one of us through everything that comes out of this online service. And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen, amen. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate you. Um, We're going to continue, actually, and start a conversation that we started just two weeks ago when we had the after the hashtag one instalment. Because I believe that For each and every one of us, this is actually the same. We've got to follow Jesus in a different way to how hashtags work on our social media. You know what I'm saying? It's like hashtags, they arrive, they come and they go. And as quickly as they arrive, as quickly as they go. And there are many things that we follow Jesus in accordance with his word about that we've got to not follow him as though we are following some kind of hashtag. So we're going to continue that conversation. You know, if you're anything like me, I bet there's been times and seasons in your life where you just feel like you're doing way better than you actually are. If I were to speak about being a parent, honestly, this is something that I experience almost daily. I mean, especially in this COVID season, big shout out to all of you incredible mums and incredible dads right now, especially those of you that are homeschooling. I mean, seriously, I hope that your algebra is way better than mine because the truth is this season has been complex especially when you think about how the kids are all at home and not many are in school. I mean, seriously, I've had to learn more about science, geography, history, maths, the lot than than year 10 in high school. It's crazy, right? But I've had one of those moments recently where I've just realized that I'm not doing anywhere near as well as a parent as I thought I was. We'd finished doing like, you know, the whole Google Classroom setup one day and um, our youngest child turns around and he says to me, you know what, Dad? I've really learned something today. And you parents will understand the tension here. When your child says to you, like, I've just learned something today, you kind of get excited about that. And the reason why you get excited about that is because typically, whenever you ask your child, like, hey, how's your day been at school? And you pick them up, or what have you learned today? What do they say? 
nothing. Like every single day, the standard answer. However, on this day, our youngest goes, hey, do you want to know what I've learned today? And I just felt in that moment like I'm winning as a parent. I felt like this is incredible. Is he going to talk to me about maths? Is he going to talk to me about science? Is he going to talk to me about history? I mean, like, what's going to come out of his mouth? And I just said, I'm interested. Tell me what you've learned today. And he said, what I've learned is that I can make a clapping noise with my belly button. And I'm sat there and I'm thinking, that is not what I want to hear as a parent. I mean, seriously, I think I'm doing way better as a dad than I actually am. And I think the same can happen sometimes in our faith. That's why we've been talking in this after the hashtag conversation about the idea that unless we start doing what the scriptures say, we can just know a load of stuff and it doesn't help anybody anywhere. We can know and we can come to church. We can even feel the shivers down our spine when Josh and Haley are leading us in worship, but it doesn't do any good anywhere and no change is brought into effect unless we actually start to do what the scriptures say. And James, the brother of Jesus in James chapter one, he talks about this. In essence, if I was to paraphrase it, he says, it's what you do that really counts. He says, it's not what you know. He's like, yeah, you can come to church and nothing can actually change. Like you can engage in the worship set and nothing might might not actually change because it's not what you know that's important. What's really important is what you do with what you know. It's that that counts. In the same way that you can buy a treadmill and whilst it's sat at home in the bedroom, it's not doing anybody any good. In the same way that you can go to a nutritional class, it doesn't do anybody any good. In the same way that the paint, whilst it's still inside the tin, doesn't help anybody, anywhere, until we start to put some of this stuff to practice. And in Scripture, there are some things that if you follow Jesus, you've just got to do. I mean, it's kind of like if you don't follow Jesus, if you're not a Christian and you're maybe just checking things out online today and you're thinking, well, I don't really know why I'm here. I'm just trying to figure things out. Then this doesn't necessarily apply to you. Although if you did apply it, I promise you, it will give you a way healthier and more balanced life. But for those of you who are followers of Jesus, this is compulsory. Like this counts. What we're going to talk about doing today is not multiple choice. It's not optional. Like we've got to live this out. It's super important. You know, in 1886, there was a company that was created called Coca-Cola. What's interesting about Coca-Cola is it's one of the most famous logos and emblems around the world today. In fact, it is the second most noticeable symbol of any organization that's out there. Everybody knows that red and white sign of Coca-Cola. People know about Coca-Cola because of their branding. It's the most recognizable symbol. Apart from one, which I don't think is bad, bearing in mind it's just sugar and water. But there's one other symbol that is way more recognisable than the brand of Coca-Cola, and that's the cross. And I think that that's so significant for us. Because even though Coca-Cola's mission statement is that they want to try and ensure that a Coca-Cola is within arm's reach of every person on the planet, I think that the symbol of the cross really is something that is genuinely within arm's reach of everybody on the planet. So what are we talking about today? Well, let me ask you a question first. Who has ever been hurt? Has anybody been treated wrongly? 
I bet every single one of us knows exactly what it's like at some time to feel the pain and the frustration of just being treated badly. Maybe you were lied to. Maybe somebody lied to you. Maybe somebody said something about you that was completely untrue. We all know what it's like to be hurt at times. And if you're the same as me, I bet your response to being hurt is probably to hold a grudge. Now, here's the truth about grudges. They are kind of like our secret pleasure, aren't they? I mean, even though we know that it's not great if we hold on to them, why do we all still do it? I bet that there are things that have happened in your life that makes you hold a grudge. And what's crazy about grudges is there are secret pleasure because we fantasize about our grudges. What we do is maybe someone has said something to us, a family member. Maybe a husband has treated a wife badly. Maybe vice versa. Maybe a son or a daughter has just started to rebel and they've said all of this crazy stuff. Or maybe you're the guy that's in work and now the contract's changed and your boss hasn't delivered on everything that he promised and you feel like, man, they've just hurt me. Do you know what we do when we hold a grudge? We start to fantasize about what we're going to tell them when we see them walking down Church Street on a Saturday afternoon. We start to create all of these ideas in our heads, don't we? About I'm going to give them what for. I'm going to tell them exactly what we think. And we have all of these fantasy conversations going on in our head all of the time. And yet, even though it feels great to hold those fantasy conversations, how's that working out for you? I mean, like, seriously, is any good coming from you holding a grudge? Is there any helpful thing that comes into your world because you hold on to it tightly? Has ever anything good come from a grudge? And I'm just sceptical about grudges, if I'm honest. I understand why we like to hug them and hold them, but I'm just sceptical that they don't do any good at all. And that's why today I've been praying all week for every single one of you at home that if you feel like your life is being held back as a result of the hurt that's happened in your past. And even now for you, you're basing decisions in your present for your future on hurts from the past. My prayer for you is today will be the day that those chains will be broken. But it starts by looking at how we deal with grudges. Because the truth about grudges is this, the longer you hold on to them, the deeper they will hurt you. And it's the same for you as it is for me. But there is an antidote antidote to dealing with grudges. And the antidote is something that not one of us wants to discuss or talk about. And in fact, I know how this works. The moment that I talk to you about it, the moment that every single one of you, whether you're on tech or not, the moment that you hear what I'm about to talk about, you're going to switch off. And you're going to think, man, I've heard about this before. Like, I've heard about this a thousand times. There's nothing you can teach me on this subject that's going to make me want to listen to you. But I promise you, it's one of those things that as we're about to find out, the Apostle Paul is like, you've got to get this right. Like, if if you're not a follower of Jesus, this would benefit you immensely. But if you follow Christ, this is not something that you could know about and not do. This is something that you've got to do. That's why I want to talk to you about forgiveness and about how this is the alternative. This is the antidote to dealing with the grudges that we often all hold. 
Before we jump into scripture though, and in a moment we're going to jump into Romans 12, which is written by Paul the Apostle. But before we do that, I just want to give you some very brief history and understanding about the cross, that symbol that we've already spoken about. What's fascinating about the cross is that how it's often depicted to us is not necessarily how it's always been. For example, in Eastern Roman culture, crosses were more of a T-shape than they were a physical cross with like an upright and a cross section. They looked more like a T. But what we see depicted hanging on chains every, everywhere now, I even wear one myself, are, are crosses. What we see on tattoos on people's forearms are crosses. What we see when we think of the imagery surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is this idea that he was hung on a cross and he was hoisted 20 feet up in the air and the crowds would gather all around him. And as Jesus' body bled, we think that the crowds would all have been looking up towards him and that they would have almost been like in disbelief as a result of what was happening. But it's not how crucifixion actually took place. What really happened with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was that his body was nailed to a cross and he would have been on eye level with everybody else that was gathered around him. And it's so significant, the reasoning behind why the Roman Empire would do this. In the main, it was because of this. They wanted to send a message. They wanted to instill fear within everybody that would gather around at eye level with whoever it was that was hanging on the cross. So think of it in the case of Jesus. What they wanted to happen was for the crowds to amass at his crucifixion, who would be eye to eye, face to face, nose to nose, to watch every droplet of blood fall from his body. What they wanted them to think at that time was this is a message, and it's a message that will instill fear in you. This is a message, and it's about you towing the line. It's a message so that you will know that this will happen to you. The same thing that you see happening to Jesus will happen to you if you ever choose to not bow the knee and obey the Roman Empire. But I think there was another message that was happening on that day too. There was a way bigger, more significant message that was taking place that the Roman Empire had zero control over at all. It was a message that was being sent by God our Father in heaven so that actually the crowds that would gather around Jesus and get face to face, nose to nose, eye to eye would physically, tangibly be able to see a message of hope, a message of restoration, a message of grace. This was a statement. This was the maker of heaven and earth sending his one and only son down so we together, you and I, who put our faith in him can live life forgiven from everything that we've ever done wrong. It was a message saying there is a way. It was a message saying you can know who God really is in an authentic way and you get heaven. It was another message that was taking place when that cross was being planted into the ground. And perhaps the biggest message was the message that through Jesus's death on the cross, that forgiveness was now not only given to you, but it was now also to work through you. And that's the point that we want to make today. That forgiveness has not only been given by God to you, 
If you're a follower of Jesus, it's now our responsibility. It's up to you to make sure that that same forgiveness flows through you. Because you're not just a recipient of God's forgiveness. You are now a distributor too. But the idea of forgiving people, especially those that have hurt you, is frustrating because it leaves us trying to answer this question of, well, how do we even do this anyway? How does this actually work? Some of you know exactly what it's like to be living in the pain and the turmoil of a marriage that's not working out or the stress and the tension of everything that's going on in the business and having had a business partner that's just dealt with you really unfairly or a set of cards have just been played in your world that you just think, this is wrong. This is unfair. This should not be happening to me. I can't believe this is happening and there's no way that this should ever be happening to me. So what we struggle with the most is not the idea of forgiveness, it's the practicalities of, well, how does that work in our life anyway? I mean, even if we wanted to forgive someone that's done wrong to us, how do we do that anyway? Well, Paul tells us exactly what we need to do. So let's jump in, Romans 12, verse 17. This is Paul, it's super practical. This is exactly what you do when you find yourself holding grudges against people, places, organisations because of the wrong that has been done to you. He says this, do not repay anyone evil for evil. I just want us to pause there for a minute. Isn't it funny how the very first thing that Paul says is don't repay evil for evil? And it's kind of like, He's acknowledging that what you've been through is wrong. Paul here is not trying to say that what you've been through is just something that you should just dismiss, pull your big boy pants on and just walk on through life as though it's never happened. Paul was saying, no, no, I I get this. He was saying, I know that this is a big deal for you. Paul was acknowledging that some of the stuff that you've been through Some of the things that have happened to you, he's like, this is wrong. It should never have happened. This is evil. But he was saying the answer to dealing with the evil that's been dealt to you is not to respond with evil. He was like, you can do that, but it's not going to help you. There is another way. So then he goes on and he says, so be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, I love that. In other words, you can't control other people's response to what your actions are. He's saying as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Peace. Notice that he doesn't say live in partnership. He says live at peace and it's different. And I think that Paul here is adding weight to the fact that he knows that maybe some of the things that you've been through, some of the things that have happened to you, they're just wrong. It should never have happened. It's evil, it's bad, it's wrong. So he's kind of saying, just because you're gonna move on from this, it doesn't mean that you have to go and reintegrate your entire life with someone that's really mistreated you. He's not saying you've gotta become partners again. So for those of you who are thinking, man, I had a business partner once and he ran away with all of the money. I mean, he absolutely dealt me a bad set of cards. But even Paul's saying, yeah, yeah, you don't have to go back into partnership with him. That would be crazy. But what he is saying is if you follow Jesus, you have to try as far as you're responsible. You have to try to live peaceably with them. Then he goes on, verse 19. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge and I will repay, says the Lord. (laughs) If we're going to be honest, this frustrates me. 
you know, there are certain parts of scripture that just kind of you wish weren't really in there because it would be so much easier, we think, that if we could just take the law into our own hands, like if we could just avenge the wrong that's been done to us, it might make us feel a little bit better about ourselves and the situation that we're trying to move on from. But Paul here is clearly saying when it comes to vengeance, when it comes to avenging the wrong that's happened to you, like that's the responsibility of the Lord. So I have a question to every single one of you. Whose job is it to avenge you? Or maybe I can put it this way. When you choose to avenge yourself, whose job are you doing? Because according to Paul, he's like, that's God's job. So do you think you're God? You know, I wouldn't even think I could do a better job. You know, there are certain things Paul was saying that you've got to leave in the hands of God. And there are certain things that you're responsible for. So when it comes to living peaceably with people, that's down to you. When it comes to avenging and making right the wrong, the evil that's happened to you, that's all on God. But now Paul gets even more practical and gets right into it. Verse 20. Now he starts to break the whole thing down. Now he's telling us this is how we do it. He says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, Give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And the point that Paul is making here is this, that forgiveness is aggressive. But when you're aggressive with your forgiveness, you will find freedom. And all of a sudden, all of those things that bothered you from years ago that have happened to you that are wrong, Paul was saying, this is how you find real freedom. Verse 21, he goes on and he says, So do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. Paul here, it's funny to me. He's kind of saying, guys, you've got two choices, but just so you know, one of them will really mess things up and the other way is the right way. We'll see you living a long and full and fulfilled and healthy, balanced life. So he's kind of going, this is your choice. But really, if you follow Jesus, there's only one choice. He's saying you can choose to be overcome by evil or you can make the decision that you're going to overcome evil with good. And this is where it gets really hard because chances are the more you hold on to a grudge, the more it's going to overcome you. The more you hold on to the hurt that they've done to you, the more it's only going to harm you Every single time that that incident or that statement that they said and they did, it comes to the forefront of your mind. You can't move on from that whilst you're still holding a grudge. But he's saying, look, when you choose to let the grudge grow, you find freedom, real, authentic freedom. It's like you can just breathe again. You can find freedom when you choose to allow God to avenge the wrong that's been done to you and you make the decision to live peaceably. So there are four real super quick things that I think that you've got to do and I'm going to give you these four things and then I'm going to finish with a story. But these four things are the four things that you've got to do if you want to move on and find freedom from the hurts of your past. Number one, firstly, you've got to embrace God's forgiveness for you. 
power of the cross. That message of the cross, Jesus hanging there with the crowds gathered around him, eye to eye, face to face, nose to nose, was so you and I today can live in freedom that comes as a result of the cross because we have been forgiven and made right and made righteous and made holy by our maker and heaven in earth who desperately wants to know you. So you've got to start with just embracing God's forgiveness. But I get it. For some of you, the idea of moving on from a hurt or a pain or a criticism or a statement or a thing, it just feels too soon for you, right? It just feels like, man, this isn't a scar that's healed over. This is a oozing open wound right now. And you feel like you just can't move on from it. And I want to say for you right now, that's cool. It's okay. But you've got to start your own place of healing by trying to establish the fact that God has forgiven you. And you can stay there for as long as you want and there's no pressure from me. But here's what I suspect. I think that what happens is this. When you decide to embrace God's forgiveness for you, when you realise how good and gracious God has been towards you, you'll start to understand the same thing that some of us will understand. And that's that forgiven people forgive people. It's what it's all about. That's the story of the cross. That's the power of the symbol of the cross. Forgiven people forgive people. And that's on us. Third thing you've got to do is allow God to avenge you. You don't need to take that into your own hands. You'd be fighting a battle that you would never be successful in. You learn the art of living peaceably. Allow God to avenge you. And then fourthly, just understand that it's only through doing good that you'll ever overcome evil. That you'll never overcome evil by repaying evil with evil. It doesn't work. The formula is broke. The maths doesn't make sense. It's not the right way. And Paul's going, look, it just doesn't work that way. Let me try and demonstrate it through a small story that's taken from a book called Unbroken. And it recounts the life of an individual whose name is Louis Zapparini. Louis Zapparini was a, an Olympic athlete who competed in the 1936 Olympic Games. And he was tipped to go and win medals in the 1940s Olympics. But obviously the 1940s Olympics didn't happen because of the World War. What actually happened for Zapparini was that he signed up to join the United States Air Corps. However, one day they were flying a rescue mission over the Pacific Ocean and their plane was taken down and there were only three people, including Zapparini, that survived. What happened was for the next 47 days and nights, Zapparini was just let loose in the Pacific Ocean, spanning 2,000 miles over 47 days, no food, no drink, only one oar between three men that they physically had to fend off and fight off sharks. And on midnight of the 47th night, Zapparini looked up in the dark and he could see the stars. And he prayed the kind of prayer that we pray when we're in a hard place. He prayed the type of prayer that we pray when we feel stuck. He said, God, if you're real and if you can get me out of this, I'll follow you all of my life. The very next day, 
all three of these United States Air Force soldiers were taken captive by the Japanese army and they were transported to a prisoner of war camp just outside of Tokyo. And their two years spent at that camp made their previous 47 nights in the ocean look and feel like a walk in the park. I mean, they were severely beaten. They were kept in deplorable conditions. But what was horrific for Zapparini was that there was a Japanese guard there who was in charge of the entire camp, who was called Machi Wantanibi. And Machi recognised who Zapparini was as an Olympic runner. What this meant for him was he had somebody now who he could direct all of his aggression and all of his frustration towards. So whereas previously there would have been hundreds of men in the camp that would have been on the receiving end of all of this anger, now it was solely directed towards Zapparini. One day, he commanded another soul, another prisoner, to go up and stand next to Zapparini and continually punching him in the face again and again and again and again. Another day, Matthew Wantanibi lined Zapparini up against the wall and he struck him repeatedly with the buckle end of his belt until his head cracked open. Things got so bad for Zapparini, he started to plan and scheme of ways in which he could kill and take out Machi Wantanibi. He was absolutely convinced that he wanted him dead. What was funny was the very next day, he went out into the courtyard of the prison and there was an American plane flying by and he sensed that maybe the end of the war was now nearing for there to be an American plane flying over the camp. And it was, it was the end of the war. So Zapparini returns home to California and he starts to try and kickstart his life again. He's married and he's got a wife, but even though the war may have ended, the war inside Zapparini still raged on fiercely. He couldn't understand why he was so angry all of the time. He was aggressive, he was frustrated. He was so caught up from the things that had happened to him in his past that he felt were just so unfair. They were wrong, they were evil. So he started to drink, became an alcoholic, almost lost his wife. And then check this. One day his wife says, Hey Louis, um, there's a travelling preacher that's coming to town. Would you be willing to come and listen to what this man says. And of course, he said at that point, what every guy says when his wife tries to drag him to church. He's like, no, I'm not interested. I don't want to do that. That's not on my radar. I'm not interested. But how many wives? No, (laughs) you girls can be persistent, right? So she continued to ask and ask. And eventually, Zapparini breaks down and he's like, okay, we'll go. So he goes to night one of this crusade that was happening where there was an American preacher And he spoke to Zapparini along with thousands of others in a giant auditorium about the symbol of the cross, about how it was this powerful statement. It was this message of love and God's peace and his plan to restore humanity into a real and life-giving relationship with him. And Zapparini listened to everything that he'd heard. And then at the end of the night, the preacher gave him an opportunity to pray a prayer and come to acknowledge Christ and his Lord and Saviour. 
And Zapparini grabbed the white the hand of his wife and marched her straight out of the auditorium and said, don't ever invite me to go back to anything like that again. The next day, his wife, who is persistent, says, hey, Louis, maybe she kind of looked at him, you know, in one of those way, ways that you wives have the knack of doing. And he was like, hey, will you come back and hear the preacher again? And at first he was like, no, I don't want to do it. But hey, night two comes and he's back in the auditorium listening to the evangelist speak. And right at the end of the night, he gives this altar call, they would call it back in the day, an invitation to respond, to become a Christian. And Zapparini grabs the hand of his wife, marches her out to the back of the auditorium. And just as they're going through the door, he stops in his tracks. And it's like he has this moment where he's reminded of the 47th night in the middle of the raft as he's looking up into the heavens and the stars. And he reminds himself of the prayer that he once prayed to God saying, if you're real and if you can get me out of this, then I'll I will follow you for all of my days. And at that point, he gets down on his knees and he makes a decision to accept the symbolism of what the cross really means to him and accept God's forgiveness of everything that he's ever done wrong. And he chooses to become a follower of Christ. And it's an amazing story. And you would think that that's where the story ends, but it's not. Because Zapparini starts to read the Scriptures and it starts to talk about how you're supposed to forgive and love your enemy. And Zapparini's like, yeah, I can't do that. Up until 1952, when he returns to Japan and he goes back to the very same prisoner of war camp, which was now a prisoner that contained all of the soldiers that had now been convicted of war crimes that used to run the prison when Zapparini was there. Everybody apart from Machi Wachanibi. And he tells them that he forgives them for all of their crimes towards him. But then what's fascinating is that everybody thinks that Machi's dead and killed himself, but he hasn't. And Zapparini finds this out. And years later, in 1998, he writes this letter. As a result of my prisoner of war experience, under your unwarranted, unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and the suffering as it was to the tension and stress of humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner, but also as a human being, were stripped from me. And it was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmare caused my life to crumble. But thanks to a confrontation with God, through an evangelist called Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate that I had for you. And Christ even said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably already know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese criminals at Tosagamo Prison. I asked about you and was told that you'd probably committed Harry Carry, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, 
like the others I forgave. Now I forgive you. And I hope that you too would become a Christian. You see, the thing that Zapparini learnt is the same thing that we've got to learn. The one thing that we've got to know and not just know in our head and in our mind and has us have us some kind of theology, but we've got to do. The one thing that we've got to implement, the one thing that we've got to walk out is an understanding that forgiven people forgive people. And I know that for some of you right now, that feels crazy. How can you forgive somebody that has treated you so badly? Well, that's what Jesus says. It's not your job to be responsible for what happens to them. It's just your job and responsibility to live peaceably with those that have done wrong to you. And as you do that, you allow the forgiveness of God that has been given to you to now work through you because forgiven people forgive people. And as you forgive those that have hurt you, you find freedom.